Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. If you remember Cormac McCarthy's novel, The Road, or maybe you saw the film with Viggo Mortensen, it's about a father and his son traveling through a ruined landscape in what's left of America after some terrible collapse. It's haunting, violent, harrowing, but also moving, even tender, at times. What struck me about it, though, was the way that the road itself, this nameless highway down which these two travel, is both the corridor by which they search for safety, and at the very same time, the locus of most of the danger that they face. It's the promise and the threat, the fear and the hope. That same tension arrives again and again in the book by today's guest, a book about Route 66, the famous highway that runs down from Chicago westward all the way to LA, one of the most iconic roadways in the country, if not the world. Today on Crime Capsule, we're delighted to have Lisa Livingston Martin, author of Missouri's Wicked Route 66, Gangsters and Outlaws on the Mother Road, here to tell us about the place where Bobby Troop first got his kicks and then went and wrote the song about it, but also the place where so many others got far more than they ever bargained for. Lisa, welcome to Crime Capsule. It is so good to have you with us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really glad to be here and excited to talk about uh, lots of interesting crimes in the Ozarks. Absolutely. So before we get into your book, you wear a number of hats. You are a historian, uh, but you're also an attorney. Tell us about your background. How did you get into this particular kind of, of work? Um, well... It just seemed to be well-suited. Um, I've always been interested in government, in history, etc. I did competitive speech and debate, and after college, law school was sort of a segue. And so I went to law school, um, have practiced ever since for more years than I'd like to count. And <laughs> then over time, uh started some other businesses and, and hobbies that led to writing books. You have written several books for uh, the History Press. For our listeners who may not be aware of your back catalog, can you just describe um, a couple of those for them? Sure. Um, I have, The first book I did was Civil War Ghosts of Southwest Missouri, which is about two-thirds history of the Civil War in the area, plus ghost stories that came out of it. Uh, second was Haunted Joplin, Missouri, uh, which covered the Joplin, Missouri area. Again, a lot of history as well as ghost stories. Then the book that um, we're discussing today, Missouri's Wicked Route 66, Gangsters and Outlaws on the Mother Road. And then uh, also for History Press, I've published uh, Haunted Carthage, Missouri. And then I have other works in the, in the pipeline as well. Now, I'm not going to hide what we're going to be talking about uh, from our, our listeners in that I do want to ask you about the paranormal investigation. That is absolutely something that we have to cover today, but I'm going to hold off just for a little bit uh, because we have a few, a few things we need to do first. Now, you are a lifelong native. Uh, you're a native of Missouri and lifelong resident. Uh, for folks who don't know the Show Me State very well. They imagine, I imagine they probably think of Lewis and Clark, Budweiser beer, gooey butter cake, you know, all these good things, all mm -hmm. these very, very good things. But there is a darker, a weirder side of Missouri history, isn't there? Well, there is. And, and part of that is because Missouri has been the jumping off point for going on 300 years. Uh, even as far back as the conquistadors and the early French explorers, they they basically got into this area. And so for basically 500 years, uh, things have been going on. And uh, what became Route 66 and is now an interstate um, has always been there. It was built on uh, Indian trails. Uh, buffalo trails, 
things like that. And it's always been a conduit for contraband, whether it be outlaws escaping, whether it was, you know, illegal arms or whiskey or whatever, or more modern times, drugs or whatever. And so all of those factors lead to a tendency to have a little rough edges. You know, as you know, we are doing a series on road trips on a crime capsule, on great escapes, on fugitives and outlaws, as you say. And uh, very recently we had uh, our guest E.R. Bills down in Texas uh, tell us about all of the kind of misdoings going on down there, and there are plenty of them. Now, E.R.'s book was similar to yours in that it was a compendium of cases that were collected over time for Wicked Route 66, which came out a few years ago now, how how did you come to compile these particular cases, and how long exactly had you been collecting them? Well, uh, I probably have been collecting and researching for, you know, 10 years. Um, and this was a, a project that was a little different than my other books. Um, it kind of dovetails with my interests as an attorney as well, that because of my background in law I and practicing in Missouri, I know a lot of these kinds of uh, histories. And so I knew there's some fantastic stories out there. Plus, you walk through the bookstores and you get to the Route 66 section, and everything is Americana. Everything is kitsch. And it's like, that's that's good, and it was good for, you know, get your kids on Route 66, etc. But that's only part of the story. You got to look in the weeds on the side of the road. You know, it's interesting. I, I was struck as I was reading your book in a chapter, say, on uh, Devil's Elbow, which we'll come to a little later. Uh, you write about this sort of unsolved murder that there were quite a lot of legal shenanigans that took place regarding evidence and process and testimony and so forth. And it was one of these where, I don't want to spoil it, but everybody kind of knew who'd, who'd done it, but the law was constrained in such a way, you know, given the shenanigans that nobody was ever fully charged, prosecuted. And it's one of these very sad stories, isn't it? It is. It, it really is. And it, and it is one of my favorites in the book. So on the theme of great escapes, the state of Missouri is interesting in this regard because it really is a crossroads, as, as you write in the book. Folks, people don't typically flee to Missouri. They flee through it. <laughs> through uh, or from. Their, <laughs> right, right, exactly. You know, they're on their way to the, to the West Coast. You know, they're on the way up to Chicago or down to New Orleans along the Mississippi River. You know, uh, they might even be passing through on their way to Canada or to Mexico if they're seeking, say, you know, freedom from slavery, very common, you know, in the last century. It's a waypoint. Missouri is an intersection. And you you may want to push back on my characterization a little bit, and please do feel free to do so. But I wanted to ask, how did this status of the crossroads inform your consciousness of the cases in this particular book? Well, I mean, it, it, it did metaphorically, and it, it did literally in, in, in a lot of ways, but especially since we were talking about Route 66, because literally it's the mother road. And so many of these cases happened at particular crossroads along uh, Route 66. Um, but crossroads is a very um, ephemeral and ethereal uh, concept that very it does fit, because um, Missouri was the borderlands for very a very long time, and it also remained um, a borderland area in culture and um, attitude much longer than a lot of places did. Um, additionally, pretty much most of what we associate with the mythos of the American West and quote Americana came out of the Ozarks before it ever came out of, quote, the West. Um, if it happened in Tombstone, Deadwood, wherever, it happened in the Ozarks first, particularly in southern Missouri. And so uh, you had, uh, particularly in that, in that earlier period, 
most of the larger-than-life names that we associate with the 19th century and the forming of the American character had contact with Missouri. I mean, you mentioned Texas earlier, the settlers out of uh, the original um, settlers from the U.S. going to Texas, who then formed the Republic, were all Missourians. They left from, they mustered out from West Plains, Missouri. I mean, um, and the same thing going West. So it's hard to talk, I mean, it's hard to talk about any larger than life figure uh, of that period without a Missouri connection. So let's talk about the highway just for a second. The, uh, you call it the Mother Road. How did it get that name? Um, well, I mean, it's been termed that, that that was a uh, advertising term that they came up with for Route 66 back in the 20s. But it really, um, it really fits because from Chicago West, it was a major route that people took. Sort of like the Mother Tongue and the Mother Land, people went along that route. And so it has a lot of commonality for a lot of people if they could look far enough back in their history. Your book is... A love letter of sorts to Route 66, but as you say, and as you write in the book, actually in sort of the opening chapter, you argue that it's important to kind of move away from the kitsch and to move away from the mythos and the the romance and the high drama, the dustable kind of sagas that we that we get in favor of its more shadowed history. Why do you make that claim? Well, something that has happened in uh, the 20th century, particularly post-1950, when you have saturation of television and people sitting, you know, in their living rooms, eating off TV trays and watching TV shows, we have, we've become a very shared uh, culture. And what, what really happened with entertainment was they took our original stories our folklore, our heritage, and repackaged it through pop culture, fed it back to us in, you know, cellophane kind of bubbly uh, cliches a lot of times. And over time, people think that's what reality, that was the reality. And so basically they took, they took our reality from us, our stories from us, repackaged them, fed, us, fed them back to us, People tend to forget the nuances and, and really the very um, much broader strokes and more beautiful history. Uh, and I mean, beauty in the sense of depth and emotion, etc. That those that pop culture came out of. We have had a number of guests on the show who have made a very similar argument, which is that the the most local accounts, the the sort of the most local. Um, chapters or, or kind of the local is always the weirdest. That's what I'm trying to say, right? <laughs> like the further, the closer you get to sort of like this house on this block at this time, the weirder and weirder the stories get. And you can go to, you know, we had a guest on uh, some months ago who told us about a, a trial in Brockport, New York, where, you know, a dog drowned a young boy swimming and then the dog was put on trial. Right. Um, you know, we had, um, uh, a guest on who described uh, a vigilante in uh, on the White River in Arkansas, you know, who grew up among you know sort of river rats, river people, right? Who took the law into her own hands and killed her father's murderer in the courtroom right then and there. It's these very profound, actually, I know that story. Yeah. Stories, <laughs> yeah, it's a great one. It's a great mm-hmm. one. Um, you know, Denise Parkinson was a great guest, and you know, we we have these stories where. Every now and then they intersect with the national currents, and they often do. Uh, but sometimes it's this terrible thing happened on this street corner, you know, and and it's our street corner, and it's our terrible thing, right? And there's a sort of pride of place in the dark history, isn't there? There is, and and I and I, I like the fact that you're using that term because dark history is something that uh, uh, I delve into a lot, and in other projects we'll talk about later, but. Um, what, what I what I really uh, find too, not only that, but in the in the localities, 
people, because they are so saturated with the pop culture, they are also losing those local stories. And what we tend to hear a lot are some of these pretty infamous stories, and one of them's on the list to talk about today. I, when I do public events, younger people were like, oh, that didn't really happen. That's an urban legend. That's just what they tell kids <laughs> to, to scare them. And it's like, no, that really happened, you know? And, and so that's another value is because it, it's another form of it, of our, our shared experiences becoming quote pop culture and diluted to the point of urban legend in people's minds. Let me ask you a question uh, about, about that kind of awareness or saturation of, uh, of the area that you're describing here. And, and feel free to take all of Route 66 if you want, or if you just want to sort of focus on, say, Joplin and Springfield, you know, sort of southwestern Missouri, uh, whichever way you, you want to handle it. But I'm curious, how, how well mapped is this area in terms of its dark history, do you think? Do you think that there are still things waiting to be discovered? Or do you feel like, you know, from your vantage as a researcher, most of what we know has been kind of found and enshrined and investigated uh, in, in, this, in this particular region, that there probably aren't many more surprises to be found? I kind of have to say yes and no, because th- there, are a lo- there, there are, we are finding new stories all the time. Um, and in, in our other project, Dark Ozarks, we, it's funny, we started out going, I wonder how long we can go with this. You know, how many stories are there? And it, it expands exponentially. Um, we, you know, we are aware and researched numerous, but many more come to us. And then it's a matter of, you know, boots on the ground, really trying to find those original sources, et cetera, which can be pretty hard to find. Um, and a lot of witness interviews and um, family interviews from witnesses that, you know, are no longer here, things like that. And so, yeah, there's a lot of more stories there, uh, but there's an awful lot in different places. It's a matter of putting them in one spot, basically. Recently, we had your colleague, uh, Vicki Cosner, uh, in Missouri, who wrote Missouri's Murderous Matrons on to tell us about, you know, some of the, the in- incidents that had happened elsewhere in the state. And she made a similar observation, which is that tracking down these sources over periods of decades and and decades where living memory has gone, you know, have sort of scraps of fragments of things, you know, the archives aren't necessarily forthcoming. Even in southern states where memories run long, eventually there is, there's a bottom to that well, isn't there? And you do have to rely on other methods and other sources. That's true. And then it's also a matter of, um, sometimes it's just a matter of the pieces that are still there that have been handed down orally, getting getting those people to talk because depending on the story, they can either be embarrassed that their family was involved or, um, you know, uh, feel odd about bringing attention to themselves with it or feel like, oh, that just needs to be, that needs to be forgotten. And, and then of course it goes, it goes to the old saying that, if you if you don't understand all these things and how we got here, you do risk going through it again. <laughs> there we are, doomed, doomed to repeat. Yes. Uh, so l- let's let's talk about one of the most prominent cases in your book. I want to spend kind of the most time this week up front on. Uh, on a dynamic duo whom everybody is going to know, <laughs> but they may not know this particular part of Bonnie and Clyde's story. I mean, you you isolate this really interesting brief chapter in the long criminal career of Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow, um, wherein Joplin, Missouri and Joplin in particular play this kind of key role. I mean, it's a really significant role um, in their in their careers. I hate using that word when it comes to criminals, but like but it's, gangsters, I mean, it's you true. know what I mean? But it's like, it's a word. And <laughs> what we don't have many, many other options with that, uh, you know, in that respect. So take us back to the 1920s and the 1930s when 
the Midwest, as you write, was the home base for many different kinds of gangsters and outlaws, right? Um, and I'm curious if you can sort of set the stage for us as to how Bonnie and Clyde ended up in this area in particular at that time. What was their trajectory? What were they doing before they got here and how did they get here? Well, and that's almost a trick question because it wasn't before they got here, they, um, it was coming back for Bonnie. Um, what people think of Bonnie and Clyde as a Dallas, Texas story that, you know, meanders around then ends up in Louisiana. However, uh, Bonnie spent uh, several years as a teenager living in Commerce, Oklahoma, which is a stone's throw across the state line. Um, and so she knew the area very well. And there were people in the area, particularly in the Commerce area, that would protect her. Now, there's also a little larger picture to think about is that during this time period, uh, with the Great Depression and the gangsters' uh, activity in the Midwest, majority of the bank robberies happened in Oklahoma. And Joplin has the, has the geographical distinction of being literally, you know, a mile, from, mile or two from the Kansas line and, you know, four miles from the Oklahoma line. I, I can go about 15 miles from my house and stand in all three states at the same time. And at the time, at that time, too, law enforcement did not cross state lines. So if you robbed a place in Kansas and got to Missouri, you were okay, or vice versa, or Oklahoma, vice versa. And so, in fact, there is one, there's one incident later in their career, because they were through here a number of times, and they were being chased by um, deputies in Newton County, Missouri, and they were heading to Oklahoma. And they'd been chased long enough that the driver, the, the officer driving, he was mad. He wanted to catch them. And they're getting to the state line. And his partner's going, what, what the hell are you doing? Stop. And he goes, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get those blankety blank blanks. And he goes, it's not our problem. Let's not get killed over it. You know, and so they ended up stopping. Um but um, and then ironically, it was shortly after that that they kidnapped their last uh, police officers actually out of Commerce, Oklahoma, um, and shot, shot and killed one um, all while they were changing a, a, a tire. And the officers uh, thought that they um, that they were just travelers stranded and, and stopped to give them a hand. And they, they killed one officer, took the other one um, hostage for three days. And um, so. You have that atmosphere. Joplin was actually known at the time as the home of the American bank robbers because so many bank robbers were based here. Plus, the largest safe house in the Midwest was actually in Joplin. Um, we think of Chicago, but actually people from the outfit in Chicago and other places sent people, sent guys down here to lay low you know, when, the, when things were hot. And so who was running who was running that? How much how much do we know about that particular uh, safe house? Oh, a lot. Uh Harold Duffy uh farmer ran it. Uh he grew up in Webb City, Missouri, which is exactly where I live right now. It's um uh a community five miles from Joplin. And actually he grew up with Ma Barker, um, also in Webb City. And um he trained her sons, the Barker boys, to rob banks. He uh, worked with Pretty Boy Floyd, etc. And actually, the Kansas City Massacre was uh, planned at um, uh, a very luxurious hotel in Joplin in the restaurant. And then the the uh, the legend goes that the legend goes that Pretty Boy Floyd was the trigger man for the Kansas City Massacre, although they, they never conclusively proved it. Um, however, legend is that uh, on his way out of town to go to Kansas City to intercept them, he stopped at a department store, bought a fedora, bought a postcard, filled it out and mailed it to the police, uh, job and police department saying, you miss me. Um, <laughs> so the, um, the, the, the pair on that one, I swear. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So that that's sort of the atmosphere, you know, um, that was going on. 
And so you have Bonnie and Clyde and, and all these other uh, gangsters going through here. But Bonnie knew her way around and had people who would hide them. And so it was a way for them to get out of Texas where, you know, Clyde was known more. Um, and they had robbed various places around. Um, there's one uh, pretty uh, entertaining story about a bank in a villa, which is, oh, maybe 25 miles from Joplin, that um, they had been robbed a few months earlier by the O'Malley gang. And so the bank president had started wearing two shoulder holsters and had all his tellers um, in, uh, carrying pistols and uh, holsters, shoulder holsters. And the story goes that Bonnie and Clyde came in a few months after all the photos came out from the Joplin hideout. And um, the bank president looked up and said, good afternoon, Mr. Barrow. And, <laughs> and, uh, recognizing him and uh he, said he was determined he wasn't going to get robbed again and the right. story and he, sort of like would you like to open an account <laughs> <laughs> exactly <You know? laughs> and so the story he told anyway was that uh, clyde looked at him and tipped his finger to the brim of his hat and turned around and walked out <laughs> nice nice might have saved his life you never know uh, you never know Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. You know, it is interesting as I was reading your account, I thought, um, I was trying to sort of picture what, you know, this very flat landscape, uh, you know, would have would have entailed with police chases and the sort of these older cars. Um, but it's not flat. It's not all flat. That's the thing. Okay. We're, we're okay. in the foot, we're in the foothills of of the Ozarks, so I mean we we are we've got hills. I mean we're we're we are you know thirty miles from a uh, pretty significant you know um, foothills of the uh, mountains, and then you know other direction prairie in a few miles. So it just depends on which direction you're going. <laughs> Okay, I stand corrected. I stand corrected. I guess Dusty kind of entered my mind, you know. Oh, uh, I'm sure in, it was. <laughs> in, in some respects. But I had this sort of mental mental picture of, you know, these these police cars pulling up to the state line and sort of, you know, watching the, um, you know, the chase car just disappear off into the horizon and that feeling of powerlessness, of frustration, um, and, and wondering when the laws changed to allow extradition or, you know, jurisdiction across state lines for major crimes, right? And sort of well, thinking, like, if these guys had just been a little bit later, they could have kept going. Well, and that, that came as more as more um, power came to uh, the FBI and the U.S. Marshals um, uh, because— uh, you know, they, and a lot of it had to do with technology at that time too. I mean, it just didn't make sense for them to, to do that. And so th their position was go to the state line, let the next County pick them up, you know, pick up the chase. So, so let's go to the spring of 1933. The Barrow gang has rented an apartment 
in Joplin. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how far off Route 66, but they have been using Route 66 to, you know, plan heists and make raids and, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's not very, it's not very far off Route 66, the, the hideout isn't. Um, and the, the thing of it is, is they, 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 they did it, they wanted to take a vacation. That was the, that was the goal. They said they, they were going to take a vacation and lay low. However, they had a hard time doing that. Um, and partied an awful lot. Um, and um, at this point, Clyde's brother, Buck, had joined them and his wife, Blanche. And poor Blanche um, had just recently married Buck. He, um, that you know, she thought he was, had turned over a leaf. He'd gotten out of jail and, you know, um, wasn't hanging around Clyde and this. And so she was prepared for a nice... Um, you know, conservative marriage and, and starting a family. And the next <laughs> thing she knows, they're down here. Uh-oh. They kept partying. They were going out a lot. Uh, it uh, looks like that they robbed a, a jewelry store not far away, things like that. And to be honest, the neighbors were noticing and they thought they were moonshiners because they were drinking so much. <laughs> It wasn't that hard to come by in those days. We've had a number of guests detail, you know, oh, yeah. uh, in in the moonshine politics of the nineteen, you know, twenties and thirties, that you all you really had to do was just know somebody, and even then, <laughs> you know, exactly. Um, well, you yeah. had to, you know, you had a fast car, and it was coming and going, and the 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 hideout is actually a garage apartment over a garage, and so you know, you know. And so the neighbors thought that they were either running moonshine or they had a still in the, in the uh, garage. So they called the police uh, because they had been, it had gotten rowdy enough and loud enough, they were tired of it. So basically what happens is, you know, the police think they're going to go rouse some moonshiners and uh, six officers go. And it's real interesting because I do a lot of live events and I've had people, as we talked about, living memory, show up who um, uh, either, you know, had direct connection. I've had children of the slain um, officers come and talk oh, to wow. me, uh, yeah. things like this. Um, and one um, one lady uh, uh, who was, of course, very elderly at that point said that uh, she, she was six or seven, something like that, and her father... Um, uh, got the call to to go check this out, and he he said, uh, "Oh, we've got to go check out some moonshiners. I'll be back in a little bit." And that's the last time she ever saw him. And then never came back. Never came back. Goodness, I mean, it's interesting because that apartment, as you write in the book, uh, is still there. It still survives. And listeners, take note: you can go see it, and you can go see the what is it? The bullet holes in the lintel? Is that right? Yes, the the lintel over the over the garage doors. The, the bullet holes are still there, and actually. Um, it's the, the apartment itself is closed right now. There are times that it is open, but there are bolt holes inside, um, because there was a, a staircase on the west side of the garage that went up to the apartment. It was within the building. You went through a door and up a staircase. And then there was a window on the, at the top of the staircase and, uh, a closet there. And Bonnie was actually standing at the top of the stairs when the officers showed up. They showed up, and um, the guys, Clyde and Buck and uh, W.D. Jones, were getting ready to go somewhere. And they, oh, they, as the police officers show up, they open the garage door to leave and get surprised. And so shooting breaks out, and uh, officers end up, sh- they see someone through the window upstairs and shoot, and they almost shot Bonnie, and the bullet holes are still up there, too. You know, one thing that really struck me, and this is a totally uh, voyeuristic interest here. I'm just going to come right out and confess it, Lisa. Uh, You write that what was left behind at that apartment were diamonds, poems, and photographs. And I just have to ask, how good of a poet was Bonnie Parker? Really? Well, actually, if if you've heard of, if you've you heard the 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 ode to Bonnie and Clyde, and it's actually it was recited in the newer um, 
movie they did three or four years ago. Um, that was her poem, one of her poems. Uh, she wasn't bad. Um, uh, I mean, she, she really wasn't, she really wasn't that bad, but, uh, the interesting thing is, or did if, you just bless you her heart? Her, I think you just blessed her heart, didn't you? No, not really. No, no okay. not really. Actually, she wasn't that bad. She okay. really wasn't. Okay. Um, All right. um, and, um, the the interesting thing though, as you read them, you can tell she knows what the she knows what the the end of the story is. I mean, it's very clear she knows they're not getting out alive. Uh, that's interesting. Um, yeah. hmm. They're at the point that you know she recognizes you know they're never going to let them get away. Um, I guess the one question I've always had is instead of going to Louisiana, they should have just gone to Mexico, but. We'll never know why. It is interesting. Maybe, but, there's, maybe we'll have to have another biopic, you know, one day. I can see sort of the title now, you know, Bonnie Parker, gangster, gun mall, poet, prophet, right? And just wrap it all <laughs> well, up in one, in one fell swoop. Well, I do, I do have a theory, and it is actually based on a personal account given to me, um, who ironically... Uh, a great um, from a great niece of one of the officers who was killed, who one of her other great aunts, ironically, was um, in Louisiana and a hairdresser and actually did the makeup and hair at the funeral home uh, on Bonnie and Clyde. Wow. Wow. And she says that her uh, great aunt always said when that she saw the bodies and prepared them, that it was very obvious that Bonnie was pregnant. And um, so she always said her aunt, her great aunt always said she, you know, she thought that they, they decided to turn themselves in for that reason. And then, of course, um, were tricked. Your account of their road tripping around Route 66 during this time period includes uh, not just their own experiences, um, but the experiences of others who encounter them. Now, it is often true, I, I, I dare say it is always true, that one of the great joys of taking a road trip is uh, who you, who rides along with you, you know, who your travel <laughs> companions are, you know, the buddies yeah. that you pick up to go to the beach or to the mountains or wherever it is. Uh, but in this particular case, <laughs> Lisa, um, the travel <laughs> companions that Bonnie and Clyde decided to, uh, you know, to pick up along the way on their road trip didn't necessarily want to go with them, did they? No. No, no. Um, and um, Officer Purcell um, is, a, is a prime example. Actually, he is the, the, the first police officer known to have been kidnapped by them. Okay, tell uh, us who he is, because people may not know. Yeah. Okay. He was a, a Springfield, Missouri police officer, and Springfield is about an hour east of Joplin on Route 66. He um, was patrolling by motorcycle um, that particular day, and uh, down downtown around the Shrine Mosque Temple, and he noticed a car that was paying an awful lot of attention. I, I don't recall the make of the car now. Uh, to a car that was parked there, and um, so. He, he got the feeling that they were scoping it out to steal. And so he followed them, ended up stopping them to see what was going on. And Clyde Burrow st steps out with shotgun and takes him prisoner. And so he's in the back seat uh, with Bonnie. Um, and um, there are bags of guns on the, on the floorboards. And they take his uh his pistols he's got um some ivory grip pistols that are uh imported they're pretty rare uh pretty unique um and uh Clyde takes them and in fact in some of the in one of the photos recovered in Joplin um he is holding one of uh, officer Purcell's pistols and so um and after the photos came out then Purcell also, you know, positively identified them. He did not. He did not know who kidnapped him uh, at the time because this was several months before. But basically, they drove him all over Southwest Missouri, 
um, and led him out uh, finally at Stone's Corner, just north of Joplin, um, which is three miles from my house, um, and um, and just led him out and said, you know, basically walk to town. It is an incredible account. You know, we have you reproduce his version of the events, you know, in your book. And as I was reading it, I just thought it is number one incredible that he lived, first of all, that he wasn't shot on sight, that he wasn't shot when he was let out. Um, but what is even more incredible is his detailed recollection of what it was like to be their hostage as they were road tripping, you know, across the southwestern part of the state, you know, the conversations that that he overheard, the the stuff in the back seat that you described, the weapons, the money, the way that I love this, the way that they relied on him for directions yes. because there was no Google map, you know, Google Maps in those days, right? They're asking their police officer, "So how do we get from here to there?" You know, they've got they got he's bound and gagged in the back seat. It's yep. phenomenal. And 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 perhaps my favorite part, you know, is there's there's this moment where they start bumming cigarettes off of him. You know, it's like they yes. don't even, and, and, and I love the way you put it. It's like, it's like they don't even bother to take them. They actually kind of politely ask if they can have one, you know, it's yes. sort of like, like what on earth is going on here? This is actually a road trip. All we need now is like some bourbon under the floorboards, you know, <laughs> like probably was. stolen hooch. <laughs> yeah. And it probably was. Um, and and that's and I think that's the interesting thing is that there were a lot of accounts of people running into Bonnie and Clyde who described them as personable, uh, as charismatic. They certainly, you know, it wasn't that they killed every person they ran into, kind of thing. Um, but there was that very unpredictable factor, and if things if things went wrong, you know, it, it could get very deadly. Um, I mean, even at the hideout um, where they where they got away so quickly and, and she left her purse, and that's how we we have all the iconic photos of them. Um, my, my favorite detail is as they're in the car, Clyde refuses to drive out of the garage because one of the officers who had been shot had fallen onto the driveway and was in front of the car. He, he refused to drive over him. And so his, his brother Buck gets out while they're still exchanging gunfire. And you have three officers behind a tree, which if you go to the house is 20 feet, I mean, literally 20 feet away from the garage door. Um, and so he gets out, goes in front of the car and pulls the officer off of the driveway, gets back in the car and they leave. Um, and so it's, it's a little more complicated than sort of the one dimensional, you know, narcissistic, psychopathic killers, um, image, you know, and certainly the romance, the romantic glamorization, uh, is not accurate either. You know, this was not the, you know, beautiful, stylish, Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway version, (laughs) (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> either. <laughs> mm-hmm. It is almost always more complicated, shall we say. Now, there was another uh, travel buddy that they picked up at, at, on a different um, uh, escapade, shall we say, Joe Gunn. And Joe was witness, you write, to this extraordinary shootout between, while they were riding around, it's sort of like a rolling shootout almost. Uh, between Bonnie and Clyde and the local law enforcement. I mean, I was sort of, my mind went straight to, you know, Elliot Ness and the Untouchables. Right? So it must much. have looked like that, right? I mean, it really yeah. must have. And and that's, well, and that's how he did describe it. And, and there are other accounts that, you know, of similar kind of uh, versions of it, including uh, some of the officers, although he, he gives the best description. Um and I've I've talked to um, his great granddaughter, uh, and you know he he told the same versions through you know through the years to the families and everything, and um, you know, and, and she even said he just said by the time it was over with I just wanted to get out and walk home. <laughs> that was his statement. <laughs> I think we can sincerely uh, bless bless their heart, you know, right there. Let me ask you just a couple more questions, um, Lisa. There, 
there is this kind of interesting tension um, where the road is both the uh, means of escape, but also the place of danger, right? I mean, it kind of occupies both both worlds there. And particularly for criminals on the run, it is the corridor out, but it's also where they can be found. And if a vehicle's been identified or, you know, if the police are kind of connecting the dots as to where they're where they're true and or, I or to... where where a victim you know can innocently get caught up in something absolutely absolutely so um, i just wanted to ask you sort of one or two last questions about bonnie and clyde and and this particular getaway route um which, which was after these events and after they'd been tangled up in so many different shootouts and their apartment had been raided and you know the halfway decent poems had been found and et cetera et cetera um what were the implications for for the two of them for the for the for their gang right now that their favorite getaway route had been compromised and as a result of those implications how much longer did they stay in Missouri before realizing it was no longer tenable and they had to get out well i mean they went, they did go through uh you know kind of passed through more time, several more times, but they didn't really stay. Um, they they went north and stayed in Iowa for a little bit. They were down in Arkansas for a little bit, and then there's uh, indications a couple more times that just kind of passing through uh, for robberies. But they they really didn't take another vacation. <laughs> and i I think the biggest I think the biggest thing is that, and it's I think it's hard for people today to conceive because. Everything is videoed. Everything, you know, our, we have such a digital map uh, footprint. But once the photos came out, then, and they got circulated and there were wanted posters and so forth, then everyone knew for sure what they looked like. And before that, people had started hearing the names, but they, you know, they didn't have photos. So they had a bit of um, ability to blend in where it became much harder to do so. Makes sense. And once their cover had been blown or their anonymity had been blown, say, um, you know, most of our listeners, the real, the real crime junkies out there, I mean, they know what happened to Bonnie and Clyde once they got further south. And it became true that they couldn't stay on the road forever. They couldn't escape forever. And they didn't, did they? No, they didn't. Um, they, um, they ended up uh, in Louisiana and um, staying with uh, someone that they'd run with before. And his father made a deal with the Texas Rangers and, and uh, basically gave him up. And, um, you know, of course, there's a lot of controversy about why, why the Rangers, you know, used so many bullets, etc. And, um, you know, but if they stayed in America, if they stayed in the U.S., they were going to get caught eventually. And, you know, like I said, that was the only thing I, you know, I wondered, because at that time, they probably could have gotten to Mexico and maybe hit out, but they didn't go that far south. Let me just ask you one or two more questions about the legacy of this case. Uh, apart from the the building in Joplin that hide out the you know that upstairs apartment over the garage. Is there any other aspect of the legacy of Bonnie and Clyde along Route sixty six in this area? Things that people like to go visit or or check out or you know enjoy. Well, I mean there there are places that they know that people know they were at like the 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 bank building in uh, a villa which is right on old Route sixty six. Um, there are, um, there's a, a restaurant in town, um, Wilder's Steakhouse that has been in business since the twenties that they, they always bragged that it was their favorite restaurant and it's still here. Um, you can go to Springfield and, and, you know, stand on the corner where, where they kidnapped officer Purcell. I mean, there are, there are a lot of places and there's still stories that come out, um, 
I, I had someone tell me a story about their, their parents telling them about being uh, at a jute joint down on one of the rivers and Bonnie and Clyde rode in one night, you know. Um, so yeah, it's still a big mythos around here. Well, and that, uh, raises my last question, which is, I mean, for today's, uh, audience, today's listeners, you know, folks who are interested in this part of the state's history, um, do you think that Route 66 would have that same sort of shadowy mythos, that sort of darker side of its history to the same degree without these two? Or do you think that they are, do you sort of regard them as holding a prominent place uh, among uh, the sort of instances and and sort of the makeup of what makes Route 66 what it is? They're one of many. Um, And not to diminish their star as far as that goes, um, because it certainly is a very prominent uh, noir story along Route 66. But really, Bonnie and Clyde were just one of very many of these kinds of stories. Um, For for every Bonnie and Clyde story, there's another hundred that are just as dark with a noir twist. So. Well, we'll get into a few of those next week. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. It has been such a joy. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Our guest has been Lisa Livingston Martin, author of Missouri's Wicked Route 66, Gangsters and Outlaws on the Mother Road, published by the History Press. We have a few more episodes on road trips and great escapes left in our summer series, so stay tuned and see you next week. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. Special thanks, as always, to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To learn more about Evergreen and our dozens of other shows, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now.